The Biden administration has proposed new ways to classify people for the 2030 census with more racial groups than ever. But my next guest says the changes could still end up misrepresenting Native Americans. Robert Maxim is senior research associate at Brookings, and he joins me now. Mr. Maxim, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. It's great to be with you. And frame for us what they're trying to do generally here, because I guess there's utility. It seems like all Americans will be a different colored bead in a very giant egg crate. Is that what they're driving at? Well, there absolutely is utility in the changes that they're making to the upcoming census. And it's really two major ones that are being explored. The first is adding, you know, a new category for Middle Eastern and North African people. You know, that's obviously a really important distinction. Currently, those individuals are classified as white. And I think that there's a lot of folks of Middle Eastern and North African descent that would not identify as white in the way that most Americans think about it. And then the second is they're updating the question about race or ethnicity. They're combining the two. So currently, there's a little bit of a confusing distinction where some categories are race and then Hispanic or Latino is an ethnicity. And I think most folks don't really think about the difference between those on a day-to-day basis. And so they're combining the two in hopes of you know, making data collection more streamlined. Got it. And so how does that apply to the people that we would call Native Americans, which is actually more than one group in itself, correct? Absolutely. So I'll say a couple things. You know, the first is that the way that the federal government currently collects and aggregates racial data means that American Indians and Alaska Natives, who, you know, we in our piece collectively refer to as Native Americans, are underreported in government data sets and non-government research. And the reason that is, is because, well, about 87% of white Americans, 88% of black Americans, and 83% of Asian Americans are classified as one race alone. Just 39% of Native Americans are. And so that makes a huge difference when you think about the way that data is presented. When you see all these columns that say, you know, white, black, Asian, American Indian, and then there's a two or more races bucket. Well, almost six out of 10 Native Americans are kicked into that two or more races bucket. And that really affects you know, how data is presented about Native American people. Well, that is an interesting phenomenon just from a math standpoint, because if they are no longer any of those other races and now are Alaska Native or lower North American Native, what we used to call Indians, which was kind of the wrong word because Christopher Columbus thought he was in India. That's right. <laughs> Didn't yeah. know about North America, but... He, he was a little lost. He was, <laughs> well, you know, they were still discovering the rest of the globe at that point. <laughs> then those people would be withdrawn from where they have been traditionally counted. So all the numbers would change then, right? Yeah, and, you know, the individuals that are included in data around American Indian Alaska Native, they are. You know, they are indigenous people and they're counted in the right place. The challenge is most people who are American Indian are now kind of kicked into another bucket. And the reason that is, it's it's kind of a function of exactly what you were talking about. This 400 years of colonization that has affected the identity of people that are called Native Americans today. And, and you were exactly right at the start of the show to say, you know, it's not just one group of people. There are 574 federally recognized tribes. There are hundreds of other state and unrecognized tribes in in the U.S. today. And so it's a really diverse group. And, And that's where it gets a little complicated because of the diversity of Native people. 
And because of this really intermarriage that has happened over the course of 400 years, native identity is a lot more complex than just a single racial category. We're speaking with Robert Maxim. He's Senior Research Associate at Brookings. I mean, you could also make the argument perhaps that nobody should be counted as anything but is either a citizen or non-citizen of the United States because, like you say, there's 574 tribes. And before the people from Europe and so on arrived in what is now North America, those tribes weren't exactly a solidarity group either. Well, and here, here's what I'll say to point around kind of the modern measurement of people by race, right? I think it's at this point pretty widely known that race itself is kind of a construct, right? It's not really rooted in any sort of biology. Um, but what does happen is there are important social differences across different racial groups. You know, you see outcomes that are a function of race. And so it's obviously important, you know, I think to continue measuring outcomes by race and seeing how different groups in America are faring. What's important, though, is making sure when we're actually having these conversations that the classifications that we're using are accurate for the groups we're talking about. And and when it comes to Native people, it's quite complex because of that exact background that you're talking about. And sometimes when other people assign a name or an identity to a group, that group doesn't necessarily accept it. I'm thinking of the so-called Latinx term. Mm is Mm -hmm. not real popular among people that are of Spanish descent. And, you know, especially for Native people, right, when we talk about our identity, you know, we identify with our tribe or nation first and foremost, you know, in the same way that someone from Asia would identify as Chinese or Korean or Indian rather than Asian on a day-to-day basis. But because we're in what is now one country, the United States, we're kind of all lumped in as one racial group. I'll just say one more thing. The other distinction here with Native people is there's a long history of treaties between Native people and the U.S. government. And that makes Native Americans a bit unique. We are the only racial group that's also a political classification. And so that has all sorts of interesting implications. Yeah, that's interesting insight. And if you add all of this up and these changes go through, then what would the Census Bureau have to do differently other than calculate, you know, put it on the forms and do different numerical calculations, how would that affect the output of the Census Bureau in terms of their decennial product? What I'll say is the Census Bureau in many ways is just kind of following directions it gets. The agency that this really matters for is one called the Office of Management and Budget, and it's in the White House. Yeah, we we know them well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know OMB quite well. And so they set the rules for every federal agency around, you know, how racial data can be collected, uh, aggregated, and published. And so there are a couple different things that they can do. They don't even need to wait till 2030, in my opinion. You know, they could start right now with publishing more inclusive data around American Indians and Alaska Natives, people that aren't just American Indian Alaska Native alone, but in combination with another race, and make that really standard. When it comes to 2030, the U.S. doesn't need to necessarily uh, reinvent the wheel. Many other countries, think about Canada, think about Australia, ask about indigenous identity in a separate question from the way they handle race or ancestry. And that really decouples this idea, again, of Native people as a political group versus just one of many races. And so that's something that the U.S. government could explore as well. And just out of curiosity, what is your background that brings you to an interest in this particular area of study? Because it's something I frankly have not looked at 
that closely in, yeah, in 9,000 in interviews. Right. You know, in some ways I'm writing kind of from a personal experience as well as a professional experience. So I'm a Brookings researcher, but I'm also a mixed race Mashpee Wampanoag person. So my father is Wampanoag. We are the indigenous people of Southeast Massachusetts. You know, most Americans would think of us as uh, we are the indigenous people who first made contact with the Mayflower. So, you know, people learn about us every year in school, right? And then my mom is white. And so for me, my entire life growing up, I found myself never really included in that Native American or American Indian category. I was kind of kicked into this two or more races bucket. And I said, well, you know what? Like, I am equally a citizen of my tribe as any other person. And it turns out a significant portion, maybe half or more of Native people have had that same lived experience. And so, you know, the way that we approach this, I think, really needs to align better with the lived experience of many Native people. And again, just out of curiosity, does the tribe with which you identify, does it still have corporeal existence in that part of Massachusetts? Oh, yeah. We have a a reservation in southeast Massachusetts. You know, we have a strong presence throughout the region. Every other street side in uh, in southeast Massachusetts is a Wampanoag word. So we, we absolutely have, you know, both a cultural and, a, you know, governmental and, and legal presence in, in the area. And the last thing I'll say is I think this goes for a lot of tribes. We have a really diverse citizenship. You know, there are folks in our tribe that you would look at and think are black, are Asian, are Hispanic, are white. And there are some folks that, of course, look like what most people think Native Americans look like. And it's really not about race. It's about citizenship and kinship. And, you know, I think that there's more that the federal government can do to reflect that. All right. Fascinating. Robert Maxim is Senior Research Associate at Brookings. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It was great to be with you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, 
I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be 
impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.